From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live in Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Craig Turk. Craig has written for and run some of the biggest broadcast shows on TV. A lot of our guests have written only for cable and streaming, but Craig has made a career out of the old-fashioned, massive audience NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox shows. Some of the series he's written for include Law & Order, Cold Case, Private Practice, and my favorite broadcast show of the last decade, The Good Wife, which he helped run. Thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Hi, Craig. How you doing? I'm well, Aaron. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. Um, so you and I met through a producer who wanted you to oversee me on a pilot that I sold to CBS. Uh, that's when a showrunner like you kind of guides a newer writer and makes the studio network feel safe that they have someone who actually knows what the hell they're doing backing the thing up. Uh, Something like that. Yeah, right. So you had an overall deal at CBS Studios at the time, I think. Are you still under that deal? I am still under that deal. Okay. Well, can you explain a little bit of what it means to have uh, a deal specifically maybe at CBS? You know, what is it that they're paying you for? Absolutely. So there's all different kinds of deals in, in Hollywood. The the deal that you're referring to is called an overall deal, and it's generally made between a writer, if, you know, you're flattering yourself and want to go fancy, you'd say a writer-producer, but really between, you know, a television writer who's sort of come up and, and, and gotten to a certain level of seniority and had a certain, um, you know, sort of level, level of success where the studio feels like they want to um, have some ex- exclusivity with that, with mm-hmm. that writer, and so they essentially buy you for some period of time for two years or for three years and everything that you do whether it's working on an existing show or developing um, a new show for them uh, that you write or the situation that you're talking about with your pilot uh, supervising a younger writer who you know has some fantastic idea as you did but hasn't had the experience in you know in running a show or sort of navigating the development pipeline Um, so everything that you do winds up being owned by a specific studio, and that might that might implicate a bigger question: but what's the difference between a studio and a network? Hmm. But that's the basic sort of structure of the deal. And and you know, a thumbnail sketch is the studios produce television programming, and they they um, pay for them. They deficit finance them. Um, you know, so they they sort of help you develop and give you the money to make a show, and it's then sold to a network. So it's very conceivable. For instance, you know, my deals at CBS Studios, um, CBS Studios can do something for for the network for CBS Network. They could also do it for NBC or ABC or a cable network. Uh, so that's the basic divide. Right. So if I mean, if you're a place like like Sony or Warner Brothers, they can really go anywhere. I assume that CBS Studios, you know, tries more often than not to deliver stuff for their sister network, for CBS Network, right? It, it's it's an interesting question. Um, I think most studios would tell you we can go anywhere, um, and we'd like to let the project dictate. I do think that at the studios that are aligned with them, you know, with with major broadcast networks. 
um, that they they do like to service their networks right. and they have good relationships and so it's it's it does simplify the development process. But you're right in the sense that you know for a Sony or for Warner Brothers who aren't aligned with a the network, they they can really sell anywhere and they can develop you know probably a wider range of projects than anywhere else. Right. And so you know you have a you had a bunch of press recently that you've come on to run Dick Wolf's new show about the FBI, right? Is that at NBC where he did all of his Law and Orders, or is that at CBS? So that's going to be a co-production. Um, Dick's deal is at NBC Universal, uh, where he's been for a while, and where he has obviously had tremendous success and has a number of shows on NBC. So that would be a, that would be an example of NBC Universal, the studio feeding NBC the network. Um, I have a deal at CBS. The last show that I did for CBS was The Good Wife. Same thing, CBS Studios for CBS Network. So Dick and I will work together on this. So it'll be a co-production of NBC Studios and CBS Studios for the network CBS. Okay, it is going to be for CBS. Yeah. Um, So then you'll have been at CBS for a while now, right? So before this, you had... You did a pilot, which I want to talk about, for mm-hmm. CBS, which didn't go to series. But before that, you had The Good Wife. Right. And what about before that? Before that, I was running a show uh, called Private Practice on ABC. Okay. So that was ABC. Uh, so you made the switch over. Yeah. I actually, I had worked at CBS. Um, my first real staff job was a, was on a CBS show. What was that? Um, called Cold Case. Oh, sure. That was a big Fantastic. show. Oh, my gosh. It was such a fun show. It was really my first uh, my first staff job. And that was, that was actually Warner Brothers for, for CBS. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I, you know, I think it's sort of interesting. Um, you know, some of the guests we've had have exclusively worked in cable or streaming. Uh, you've worked, you've been on a lot of different shows, uh, and 100% of them have been broadcast, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And so, I mean, what's the, uh, do you have any interest in, in doing shorter seasons or doing, um, you know, cable streaming, you know, the, the fewer sort of restrictions we think of, uh, or you're just happy with broadcast? Uh, both are true. I have, um, I've loved the network shows that I've, you know, that I've been on. And, um, you know, it was, I, I came up and I sort of, the first thing I ever wrote actually was Law and Order. So, uh, so technically, Dick, um, yeah, that was, he, he bought the first, my spec hmm. script, the first thing that I had ever written. Um, and then I You went, wrote a spec Law and Order that got sold? I wrote a spec Law and Order back in the days when people would to have a sample of their television writing. Now, nowadays, people like to write pilots and they want something unique and they want to hear your voice. Back then, the drill was if you wanted to be a television writer, you would spec an existing show. Um, and it's incredibly and, rare to then sell that show to the show to you know to to sell your 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 spec to the show that you actually wrote it for. It, it is, and I'll t- and I'll tell you why. Because once you're on a show, um, and you you know it's it's hard enough to, to for you know as staff writers you know for your for the entire staff sort of figure out exactly what the voice of the show is and to you know understand the whole backstory of all the characters and kind of the mythology that makes a show work. And, you know, the, you, you struggle to get a staff to really consistently write the, you know, write this show well. So for an outsider to presume that they know that they know the show well is really challenging. And sometimes I would read people's specs of shows, you know, the, that I was on, whether it was Cold Case or, you know, Boston Legal or 
even the good wife. Um, and it's, it's, it's sort of an unfair challenge. You know, it's, we sit around for eight or 10 or 12 hours a day discussing how to write this show. And then someone comes in after the show's been on for three or four years um, and, try, you know, and tries to write it. And so it's really hard. Uh, I think I was too naive to understand <laughs> that, that whole process. Right. Uh, and so I wrote it and, uh, and I sent it to my agents who somehow managed to, to get it to law and order, I think just as a, as a sample. But, um, you know, it was, it was an incredibly lucky break. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, but, but wait, back to my question. Don't you want to write nudity and cursing and um, <laughs> unlikable characters? And what's up? Um, you don't want to be on cable? I, you know what? So I have typically tried to produce cable shows, either supervise or just strictly you know, produce uh, things that will go to cable. But I, I've been really satisfied with the broadcast shows that I've been able to do. So it started with, you know, with Law and Order, which is a good training ground. I went to Cold Case, which was an extremely fun show to write and really creative because if you remember, every episode was really quite different than another one because than, than any other because it, you know, it had its own time period, which meant it had its own sort of visual signature and its own sort of music. So you really it was different every time. And that that was great and that was an education. I went from there to one of my favorite jobs I've ever had, Boston Legal where I worked for David Kelly. I want to hear about that. Unbelievably great boss. Is that and I right? thought that show was so smart and so much fun, and I learned so much you know, working for David. So that job was incredibly satisfying. From there, I went to private practice, which was, was my first job running a show. I worked for Shonda Rhimes. That was hmm. um, you know, another really sort of profoundly interesting experience where I learned a lot. Um, and that show, if you recall, was a spinoff of Grey's Anatomy, which was, you know, the biggest show in the world at, at the time. So it was sort of fun to be, um, you know, involved with that. And then from there, I went to The Good Wife. And, um, you know, we always sort of flattered ourselves on The Good Wife to, to thinking that, that we were doing something akin to uh, cable television on network. You were. I mean, it was an incredibly sophisticated, smart show that trusted its audience to know what was going yeah, on. Yeah, and, and we tried to do that. And so I've, I have, um, to date, been really, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed it. I think, you know, net, network TV still allows you, you know, sort of the biggest platform and the most eyeballs. Right. And um, it's, been, it's been great. But there, like, you, there are certainly things that you can't do on network TV. Um, and so those are, those are the projects that, that I've, I've sort of, you know, as I said, either, um, you know, produced or supervised or co-written or, or something like that on the side, um, because it's, it's, you know, it's fun to indulge that side too. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's also, um, it's an incredible amount of work you're doing since you have to do 24 to 26 episodes of TV a year instead of, you know, six to 10 to 12 for cable. <laughs> that, uh, that, that, that was the other thing that we always told ourselves as, you know, as, as, as Cable television streaming really became, um, you know, such a big thing. People binge watch, and you had this, this sort of incredible um, generation of television shows. There were those shows were getting nominated for all the awards, and right. and uh, when we were in The Good Wife, a lot of our our network brethren uh, were no longer being nominated, and by the end, we were sort of the last network show that was hanging around. And it was always really frustrating because we'd feel like, God, we do like you know, 22 or 23 episodes a year, as you said, and other people were doing 8 or 10 or 12. And we thought we could make these things fantastic if we only had to do right. you know, half the number of them. But, uh, 
But, you know, there's a place for everything. Totally. That's such a good show. Um, but since you brought up David Kelly, um, you know, I'm a huge, huge fan of his. I'm curious what it was like working for him. You know, he's had a really interesting renaissance this year with Big Little Lies that he wrote every episode of, uh, which felt like a little bit of a departure from his older shows. Like, it did. It yeah. really did. What, what was it like? So he obviously, for you know, people who don't know, he started or he came to sort of prominence with L.A. Law under Stephen Bochco and then had Boston Legal. And I mean, so what was your experience like working with him? Um, fantastic. You know, I, so I grew up in a, you know, with a, with another job and another set of things that I thought that I thought I was going to, you know, was going to do my life. I was a lawyer and I worked in politics and did campaigns. Um, and so when I came to Hollywood, I, I probably didn't know enough to be, you know, excited or to know who I really wanted to meet. But of course I knew David Kelly, right? I mean, he's, you know, he's, he's sort of legendary. Right. So that was really the first Hollywood meeting that I remember being incredibly excited to have. Um, and, and he, he was in Hollywood because he lives in San Francisco with Michelle Pfeiffer, right? He doesn't, uh, he did. He lived, he lived, he lived here. He moved up yeah, to Woodside to Northern California. Um, and he did, he had just an incredibly unique setup. You know, there was a time where David had like four or five shows on the air at right. one time and he built this studio or they built a studio for him down in Manhattan beach, which is very far from where any person who works in this industry typically right. lives. Um, but uh, he had all his shows there, and you know he didn't really want executives hanging around, and we really were kind of left left to do what we wanted to do, um, and it was fantastic. I mean, it was creatively really satisfying. We had this phenomenal cast, you know, that was led by James Spader and Bill Shatner, and had Candace Bergen and John Larrakis. I mean, it was you know he attracts incredible talent, um, and we were able to do really kind of adventurous things, and it was just like wholly satisfying as a writer. But so was he in the room or was he spending more of his time in Northern California? Northern California. He so would, how would come work? down very occasionally. Um, you could talk, you could talk to him on the phone. So often we talked on the phone, but he would come down and you'd, you know, you'd pitch him an idea and you'd say, I think it would be really funny if, you know, Denny and Alan took a road trip to, to New Orleans um, and then wound up, you know, defending someone who had been involved, like, you know, the NERF who used to euthanize people after Hurricane Katrina. That, this was like one of my pitches, an episode that I wrote for him. Mm-hmm. And he would, you know, sort of say, hmm, sounds interesting. Or he wouldn't say anything, in which case you knew he'd, he's a very kind guy, so he would, you would never feel embarrassed, but you would know that there was not an enthusiastic response. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sort of without, without a lot of guidance, you would write a script. And if David loved it, then it would be published, you know. Uh, you'd send it up there, and a few days later, it would come out as a script, and you'd think, oh, it's phenomenal. Much more often, um, you would write it, send it up there, and David would jump into it, and it would come back with his name and your name on it, and it would be, you know, miles and miles better than what you had written. Um, and that was, that, was, that was actually great, too, and you learned a lot that way. And then very occasionally, you'd send something up there, and... You'd never hear back, and you'd know that you'd kind of missed the mark. Right. It's interesting. I mean, I can imagine if if he was less of a good guy, if he was an asshole, that would be an incredibly humiliating, difficult oh, yeah. experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. But he's, I mean, one is he's incredibly talented. And I right. think, you know, for any writer, when you work, no matter how you're, you're you know, you're treated by your boss, by, by your showrunner, I think if there's, an, if there's a huge level of talent, and look, sometimes, as we know, that excuses a lot of other stuff. Not the case with David. You know, he was just, he was incredibly kind, incredibly generous, and so talented. You know, you always hear these stories of float around Hollywood about, you know, this guy does this, this guy does that. And the story about David that I had always heard was 
he can sit down and just write a television episode in a day or a day and a half. And you, know, you never know what the truth of these things is. He does do that. And he sits down, um, or at least when I worked for him, he did, and I imagine the process hasn't changed much. He sat down with a yellow pad and in longhand just writes it. You know, and for, for everyone else in the world who sort of sits in front of their computer and revises and cuts and pastes and is on the Internet, right? David literally just sits down, writes this thing longhand, it comes out, and it's phenomenal. Wow, I had no idea he didn't use a computer. That's amazing. Yeah. He made by this point, but ba- back in those days, it was right. um, it was incredible. It also seems like a lot of fun. I mean, I remember those Boston Legal episodes where James Spader would have, you know, a 10-minute monologue closing statement. Uh, that must have been just so much fun to write, especially writing for an actor like that. It was great. It really was. Um, James was game for anything. I mean, deeply talented guy, incredibly yeah. committed, and you know, really, really wanted to get it perfect. Like, there, there were definitely days where you'd write along, you know, these closings that James became famous for, which were incredibly fun as a writer, right? Because typically, you're never writing a speech that's more than 8 or 10 or 12 lines long, right. and usually much shorter than that. With James, you could write, you know, two pages, three pages. I think I once wrote something for him that was like almost eight pages long. Oh, my God. Court episode. I mean, it's completely unheard of. But James would commit to these things so fully, and he might call you, 10 or 12 times in a day to go over the finest detail, the finest, you know, like the word choice. I mean, he would really drill down, which is challenging as a writer, but he was, he was just unbelievably wonderful on set when you got to the day. And it was, it was all that hard work was always worth it. That's so interesting. And would David, it sounds like if he wasn't going to be in the writer's room, he also wasn't on set. He was in Northern California. So he was in Northern California. We had a producing director, uh, on that show, Bill D'Elia, who has worked with David forever, um, and an- another guy, Mike Listo, and they were, you know, that right. cast was, was was really self-regulating. Bill is a great proxy for David, and um, they, yeah, that was never an issue. Right. Uh, last thing about David e. Kelly, uh, did you ever see the movie From the Hip? Yeah, that was that was one of his early, early ones. I love that movie. When yeah. I was a kid, that was like my favorite movie with Judd Nelson. Yeah. Uh, that's such a good movie. Uh and yeah, I think he wrote that before he started with TV, but it was it was this great, fun, tongue-in-cheek legal drama. It, it, it's interesting because uh, you know, like I think, like in any in anything, um, you know, people want to believe there are prodigies, right? And there are right. people who are just born able to do what they do. Oftentimes, that's not the case. And even if you are a prodigy, to do something at the highest level requires just a tremendous amount of work. You know, even if you're Roger Federer, you know, you're out there hitting balls all day. What you know, whatever it is. Um, David, although I was not there, I was not present at the creation, but strikes me as as close to a prodigy as there is. I mean, I just, you know, you hear the stories, um, some of which, you know, we've, I saw borne out of how naturally he took to writing and, you know, his speed and his finesse and, you know, his ability to sort of do the unexpected. And yeah, it was wonderful. Um, so you alluded a little bit to your career before uh, writing. Now, by my count, you've written on at least three different legal shows. Is that because of your legal background? Or you know, why do you gravitate, do you think, toward, toward legal shows more than others? It might have been originally because I had a legal background, although I didn't practice law for a giant chunk of my career. Um, and I certainly never really you know, spent a tremendous amount of time in the courtroom, which is often what you know what you get with these legal dramas, I do think that that legal shows are interesting because you know if you look at the the sort of three major franchises um, that exist, you know there are cop shows and there are lawyer shows and there are doctor shows. Um, 
Cop shows are exciting. They're visceral. I think people know how to follow them. Um, you know, it's like all of us know our Miranda rights now because we saw them on Law and Order or other cop shows for so long. You know, no, you didn't have to go to law school. You didn't have to be trained as a cop. You just sort of know the rhythms of that business. I think medicine is the opposite, and that was that was a, sort of a learning curve for me when I went on private practice, which was a medical show, which is even when you watch a medical show, you don't really know what's going on, right? You hear these doctors who are sort of running through blah, 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 blah. As we used to say on private practice, medical, medical. You right. know, we would literally sometimes write scripts, and for those chunks of dialogue, we would just write medical, medical, and we'd call you know, doctors who would help us fill those in. That's funny. I think law exists in, a, in, in sort of a really interesting um, dimension between those two where there's something to it. You're always learning something about the law and how it functions in this country that's kind of interesting. But I think people also do understand um, in large part what the rhythms of, of law are. And I think it's, just, it's a way of getting at really any issue. You know, I think you're less limited than you are on cop shows or doctor shows in terms of what kinds of issues you can take on. Um, so I don't, maybe it's because I have that, that appreciation because of, you know, having gone to law school and practiced, but I think I've always loved law shows because it feels like kind of the, the, the largest blankest canvas. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and it's also just so inherently dramatic, you know, two lawyers facing off against each other, opposing each other, uh, a jury that's, you know, got all sorts of power sort of facing off against the defendant. Um, and there are just so many interesting, weighty, moral, ethical issues that you can yeah. dive into. Um, I think that's right. Much more so than with medicine and with uh, cop shows, I think. Right. Um, and so uh, w- after you weren't practicing as a lawyer, maybe, or you weren't in a firm, but you were working in politics. You were working for John McCain. I think I remember you had an incredibly impressive title with John McCain. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> it's something yeah. great. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I practiced at firms in D.C. and in L.A. Okay. for very brief stints. Um, and then this would, this would have been in 1999. Um, I met John McCain. I was really interested in campaign finance reform. Uh, McCain was interested in campaign finance reform, which was not the most popular of issues, still isn't. Um, but we kind of bonded over that. And he said, you know, I'm going to run for president, and there aren't going to be any Republicans, there aren't going to be any Democrats who are going to bring this up. So I'm just going to run and bring it up. And the campaign will be like, yeah, just a few months long, but do you want to be the chief counsel? And I'm, you know, 20 minutes out of law school a first-year associate of a firm, which is, you know, essentially indentured servitude, and all of my friends are the same. And I thought, chief counsel of a presidential campaign. Fantastic. It's a badass title. Oh, it's a, it's a great title. The business cards look good. <laughs> There's, like, maybe 12 other people on the campaign at this point, none of whom are happy that they've hired a lawyer. But <laughs> it seemed great. That campaign obviously caught fire, um, you know, and campaign finance firm became a big deal. And you know, McCain fought Bush, and um, it wound up, the campaign wound up blowing up. And, and, and I, in, in a funny twist, I actually had all these attorneys who I had once worked for or interviewed with working for me by the, you know, by the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but it uh, was a fantastic experience, really great. And I've actually drawn on it a lot, um, you know, in, in my writing in terms of people I've met and, and, and issues that we dealt with and um, just a, yeah, it was a fantastic experience. It's interesting. I think we're, we're at an all-time high. I think there's something like six shows on the air right now that all take place in the White House. Um, I'm trying to think, have you ever written on a political show or a White House show? I haven't. The Good Wife, um, I guess, is a little bit political. The Good Wife had a healthy dose of, well, Boston Legal really was probably the most political of shows that I worked on in the sense that, like, we were talking about those closings. We took on really significant issues with humor, 
but really significant issues. The good wife was more sort of overtly political, um, both because you know one one of the characters had you know was involved in politics, um, and by you know by the end wound up you know uh, running for president, which was a lot of fun. But um, I've never worked. I, I actually worked in the real White House. I've never worked on a fictional White House. Hmm. Now's the time with all these shows. <laughs> um, so you had a pilot made last year uh, for CBS, uh, which didn't end up going to series. Same thing happened to me. Um, you know, you spend months working these insane hours, building a giant team of around 200 people, which, you know, it, it sort of feels like a family after a while because you're working yeah. so hard. You're spending all nighters together. And then it just goes away when it's not picked up to series. Um, now, you seems like you very quickly recovered from that and, you know, have are now running uh, a new pilot, uh, The Dick Wolf Show, which is going to go to series. But how, you know, how do you deal with the follow when, when a show, a pilot you've worked so hard on doesn't go forward? It's harder than you anticipate. I mean, you, you know, I would be interested in your, in your opinion. For me, it was, so I wrote, I wrote this, um, this pilot last year called Perfect Citizen, which was, um, Essentially, about a whistleblower from the you know from the NSA who, um, you know, uh, is exiled much like much like Snowden was after he blows the whistle on something that he thought was quite legitimate and that we sort of skewed to you know to to make it pretty legit, um, and then returns to the United States after he can't be prosecuted and tries to restart his life working at this storied law firm in Boston. It's um, a great idea for a show, and I, I read the script. It was great. Ah, uh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it was it was. Um, it was it was one of those things where I had a very clear idea about a character that I had wanted to write for a while and the world and it was you know sometimes you struggle and you bang your head against the wall in terms of trying to come up with something. This is one of those that that was reasonably fully formed when you know when I jumped into it um, and the process was was absolutely wonderful. You know, like it was I could pitch it really you know really quite easily because I saw the characters well. It was fast to write. You know, for the same reason, I sort of had a, a, a good idea of the issues that I wanted to get into. Do you remember how long went. it took you to write it after the outline, just the actual script? Um, six weeks. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, you sort of always take the time that you have available. It's funny. I was just talking to someone about this. I, for me, it's I will I will often write and rewrite the first scene of something that I'm that I'm writing. Um, you know, 20 times, 25 times, 35 times. Before moving on. Before moving on. Once I get the first scene down, and sometimes it doesn't even have that much to do with what comes after. It's just sort of a, you know, it's just a, a sort of a custom, getting yourself accustomed to that, to that project. It usually goes reasonably, you know, reasonably quickly. Famous last words. I'll, I'm sure I'll be, <laughs> we'll be doing a follow-up to this interview and you'll say, what happened to the FBI? So it's coming. It's coming. I'm going to write it. Um, Still in the first scene. Yeah, exactly. But it's... Um, but yeah, that that one came uh, quickly. The casting was great. I had really wanted Noah Wiley um, to do it. You know, I'm a big fan of his work. We had had mutual friends. We never met, but uh, we had a very close mutual friend. And um, you know, we we sat down for probably three or four hours. And you know, he asked me every question he could think of. I told him everything that was that was in my brain, and it wound up being just a, a fantastic partnership. And I couldn't have been any more proud of what we made. Um, I think it wasn't was not in the sweet spot that CBS was looking for last year. Right. Um, uh, it's just yeah, it, it's so hard. Um, how long after they passed on it until you got the um, the new Dick Wolf show? So they, they must have passed on it in May, 
which is when the upfronts are. There's there's this day, and I'm I'm sure your experience is probably similar. You think ah, you know, you write a pilot and you really want to get it shot, right? You want to get you know you want to make this thing, and you think ah, that's going to be a next really wonderful step. But once you do, you're so heavily invested because as you point out, you know, you hire 150 or 200 people, and it's people who you really you know, care about and believe in and want to work with, and you create this pilot and you spend months together building something that you think is going to have, you know, six or seven years of life to it. Right. You have and to then, operate that way. When you're you working have, on you it, you can't have not to believe think. In it. Right. Yeah, you can't not. There's no, like, you know, some of these things in life where you kind of discount beforehand. Right. And you think, like, ah, it's a, you can't do it with this. And there's too many people involved. People are moving their families. Right. I mean, it's, it's a whole thing. Um and then there's this day, you know, right before they, they got on stage where, you know, you're expecting or hoping to get this call where they say, this is great. And they go, sorry, it's actually going to be SWAT. You know, when, <laughs> that was my experience. Right. Um, but, uh, and it's, it's hard. It's, re- it's really hard. And it's, you know, it's, it, it takes you, it took me a while to recover it. First, yeah. you kind of, you know, you're, you're a bit dazed and then you, um, you know, try to process it and try to figure out why. And sometimes there's a reason and sometimes there isn't. But so if that was May... Um, the project with Dick, we cooked up in September, so it would have been May, June, July, August. Yeah, so maybe four months later. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a tricky four months. I mean, mine was uh, in some ways easier, in some ways harder, in that it was for cable. So there wasn't this, you know, there wasn't the day of upfronts where they have to decide by, you know, you're going to get a decision by this date. It's just a rolling decision. Yeah, which I, which maybe may, I mean, look, it's never easy. Maybe emotionally, there there's something to the fact that you're not sitting there anticipating. But it's really like there's a there's a day and a time, and the fate of you know the show that you've spent a year working on and all these people who you've come to love. Right. It's like well, by nine a.m. on Thursday, probably they're <laughs> going to call you, and it's like ugh, right. what, a, what a horrible structure. Right. As far as I know, by the way, we shared at least one actress in common. Adrian Warren was in my pilot, and ah. she's in your pilot. Tony nominee, Adrian Warren. Tony nominee. <laughs> I mean, right after we finished shooting the pilot, she had her debut at Carnegie Hall. Oh, really? Um, just an absolute delight. That's awesome. Um, okay. I, uh, I want to play a, a clip from your work now. Um, so this is from the seventh and final season of The Good Wife. Uh, the episode is called Verdict. It's actually the final episode of the entire series before the finale. Uh, the credited writers are you and Adam Perlman. And to set it up, uh, Peter Florek, played by Chris Noth, is on trial. And in this scene, which is roughly act three of the episode, his wife, Alicia, played by Juliana Margulies, does a mock cross-examination on her husband to see if he's ready to testify or not. Uh, So they're in Alicia's living room. And we're going to pick up early in the scene and then just let it play. It's on the long side, but I think it's a really masterful scene. And the whole series is kind of in there. So let's play the clip, and then we're going to talk about it. Barbara and I never discussed money. There was no tit for tat. You get my son off for murder, and I'll increase my financial support? I, I believe I already answered that question. Too belligerent. Huh? You're the governor. Be dignified. You know, he's going to ask it, and he's going to ask it more than once. <laughs> there was no tit for tat. There were never any strings or conditions attached to Lloyd Garber's or anyone else's contributions. As a man who was convicted of using state funds to pay for prostitutes, why should we take your word for anything? My attorney would object to that. And Judge Cuesta overrules. My conviction was overturned and I was fully exonerated. So are you saying that you never paid for prostitutes, never cheated on your wife, haven't broken every promise you've ever made? It goes to character, to your trustworthiness.
I believe I've been upfront about this. I did pay for prostitutes. I did cheat on my wife. And I've worked every day to make up for those indiscretions. So would you agree? But I'm not finished. And that is one of the reasons why when I was voted back into office, I spent every day trying to make sure there was not a single bad conviction because I saw what bad convictions did to families, did to me, did to my wife. And I swore that I would never let that ever happen again. Is that true? Yes, Counselor, that is true. It's also true that I micromanaged this case. Guilty. But that's what you should want from a state's attorney, someone who won't accept excuses for failure to Mirandize or allow for bad evidence collection. Someone who loses bullets. That was just a mistake. You say that you have worked hard every day to make up for the indiscretions of the past. But we have evidence that you were having a long time affair with not only a fellow prosecutor. Uh, we would object here. Yes, and Judge Cuesta doesn't like you. He would allow. At what point are we playing husband and wife here? And at what point lawyers? All points. Because here's the thing. You get up on that stand and every past indiscretion will be determined admissible. You're sleeping with Geneva Pine. I didn't sleep You're sleeping with, with Marilyn Garbanza. I didn't sleep You're with... sleeping with Ramona Litton. And you sleeping with Will Gardner. And you sleeping with your investigator. I'm not on trial, buddy. Man, I love that scene. Uh, <laughs> what can you tell us about that scene? <laughs> I can tell you a lot about that scene. So, <laughs> Good. Um, we referred to this scene in the writer's room as the cross-examination of the marriage, which is quite obviously what, you know, what we're getting at. And um, I'll say two structural things about it. One is um, there are set pieces that you sometimes write to because you know you want to get to it, right? This is, this, is, this is the scene. I mean, this is in some ways the scene that I think Good Wife fans had wanted for seven years, which was this really full engagement of Alicia and Peter on what happened. The second structural thing is, um, like any good piece of drama, there are two things going on, right? It's not just, um, you know, it's not just the, a cross-examination that's going to prepare Peter for, um, you know, for trial. It, it, this, is, this is an inquest into the marriage. Um, and from Alicia's point of view, it, uh, it's all summed up when she says, goes to character, right? Because she's in, the, she's in this position of being able to ask him whatever she wants to ask him and being able to say the judge would do this, the judge wouldn't do that. So this is, you know, her chance to get at her husband and to unpack everything that he has done, every betrayal over the course of this series. Um, flip side of that is, you know, Peter Florick, her husband, takes it, takes it, takes it, um, and, until he pops and, you know, says, I have been up front and worked every single day to make up for it. Um, and, you know, both of these things are cast as, you know, the, the sort of the back and forth of the questioning of a witness. But I think it's very clear when you see it and when you're, you know, kind of into the, into the series, what's happening. Um, it's interesting. It's probably, it's one of the scenes I think I'm, that I enjoyed writing the most that I am proudest of. I think it's a really good encapsulation of the series. Right. Um, as I heard it back, I wondered to myself, should we have cut the part where 
Um, and, uh, writers always do this, right? You know, anytime, anytime <laughs> oh. you get one more stab at it's it. It's demoralizing um, hearing you <laughs> second guess. Um, such a great scene. Yeah, yeah, but no, but I, I'm thinking, should we have cut when, when Peter says, you know, when are we husband, you know, when, when are we going to stop being husband and wife? Like, I don't know that we needed to get that explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, where I, where I revising this, where I sitting in the editing room mm-hmm. again, um, that might, that might be my thought, but no, I, I, I think, um, I love that scene. Interesting. Yeah. No, I, it's just an, it's an incredibly smart setup having, you know, Alicia who has this very contentious relationship with her husband play his prosecuting attorney. It just, it, it necessitates the power constantly shifting between them in that scene, which is just well, I think why the scene works so well. You know, that was a that was a three minute scene that we just played, which is a long clip for for us. But it's it's just it remains riveting because the powers keep shifting from him to her, from her to him. Um, yeah, in in writing a, the, the the I think the trick in writing a scene like that is understanding the rhythm and understanding the rhythm of those right. actors. I mean, we had the the massive advantage of of working with Juliana and Chris, who are. Uh, unbelievably, you know, wonderful and dialed in and focused and care, um, you know, and are well prepped. And so getting that scene down really necessitates, can you, you know, can you, can you do that back and forth that you're talking about? Can you have that power dynamic switch? How many times, how abruptly, when does it, when does it, you know, become a little more explicit? When is it a little more, you know, sort of buried? Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, um, you know, I think that scene was very close to, to being exactly what we hoped it could be. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm curious. So the show is shot. The show was shot in New York, and Robert and Michelle King, by that point, were uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but were in New York on set, and you were running the writers' room in Los Angeles. So how close is what you actually wrote to um, what they performed? How much change went on, you know, in in the rehearse the short rehearsal on the day? None really. Really. Yeah, I mean, Ju- Juliana, again, was um, just an incredible privilege to work with someone um, of her talent and her professionalism. And if she had questions, she would call you beforehand, and you would sort of decide, you know, because she knew the work. She knew what she, she was going to be doing. She would, you know, she would work it out then. We didn't have, I mean, I've certainly all of us have worked with actors who on the day, as they say, will, you know, will say, I don't know why I'm saying this. Uh, this doesn't work. Oh, right. can we change this? Jules did not do that much, especially in a scene like this that was really closely written. As we were talking about, you know, it had a very specific cadence to it and some some beats that we knew we really wanted to hit. So there was not a lot of variation from, from I think, what I wrote to what they performed. And any memory of um, how many times you had to rewrite the scene? I mean, it's, it's such a crucial scene for the series because this is the second to last episode ever. And like you said, these are two of our main characters, the, hus- the main husband and wife of the series, really having it out for the final time. The challenge with writing that scene was figuring out what after seven years we had to have in there and what we couldn't because you know when when you when you play it back there are certainly moments where you feel like the scene could end right it could have end could have ended before the the specific recriminations about who slept with whom mm-hmm. you know like that was a place to break it um it could have you know could have ended with you know um is, you know, it, when when uh, Alicia's character says, is that the truth? And he says, yes, counselor, you know, where he's sort of making the point that he knows, you know, she's not a counselor. So mm-hmm. there were a lot of points at which you could have ended it. But I feel like 
we wanted to cram everything that's in there in there, and there were a lot of other things that could have gone in. But as you pointed out, it's a three-minute scene. That's about twice as long as your typical uh, you know, scene on, on a network television show, maybe mm-hmm. even longer. Uh, but I think those two, I think, could, could really hold it. Um, I, I don't recall it actually being a difficult scene to structure or to write because it was, you know, there was a lot more in it. I think it was the challenge there was some degree of economy and trying to, um, you know, trying to figure out, okay, I'm not going to be able to hold this for five minutes or even four minutes, but if I get three minutes, how much can I get in? Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, curious, you know, when you're actually writing that kind of scene, when you're writing a script, is that when you're most creatively satisfied with your job? What what part of the long process from, you know, being in the writer's room and generating ideas to finally locking picture on an episode, do you feel most creatively happy, most creatively satisfied? It's a great question. I like being in the writer's room with other writers um, and figuring out a story to tell, you know, because you read the newspaper or you watch what's happening in the country or your kid said something to you on the way to school, whatever it is, there's some spark for an idea. And you go in oftentimes with a really just a very small kernel and you can explode it into something really interesting and really exciting that, you know, the, that's fun. And so I think the, the time in the writer's room is the most broadly creative. And I really like that. Um, I became a writer because I like, you know, being in my writing hole with my computer and sitting down and making the words work. Um, and that's a different kind of satisfaction. Um, so you, will you there, always have a writer's room? Like on, on FBI, are you going to have a writer's room? Yeah, there'll be a writer's room because, we'll, you know, when, when you do a network show, it's like you were pointing out, you know, David wrote all of Big Little Lies. Right. Um, and that's possible, you know, if you have a shorter order and you have a lot of time to do it. You know, in network TV, typically you have 10 months to do 22 episodes, which is like the worst marathon you'll ever run. Right. Um, and so that you, you really have to have a, a, a writer's room for that. I mean, I won't for the pilot. You know, I'll, I'll and have been, you know, sort of figuring out the characters and the pilot story. And it's just akin to writing any pilot. But then there'll be a writer's room. Um, but, you know, you know it's, what else is interesting? So I really I love I love the process of, of writing, the process of revising less so. But, you know, obviously all writing is rewriting. The interesting thing, and I would be curious if you if you had the same experience, is writers, showrunners, love post production. They love to edit, and I think the reason is because it's a it's a relatively passive act in comparison to sitting in a room and doing the hard work of breaking a story and sitting in front of a blank screen and creating the words. Because when you edit, it's there, right? You have you may you may have a lot of takes of a scene. But you only have what you can have, and, you know, you just have to sort of – it's like having a puzzle. No matter how complicated the puzzle is, it only has the pieces that it has. Whereas in a writer's room or at your desk, there's sort of an infinite number of ways you can go. And so I think there's something circumscribed about the editing process. And to me, it's not the most highly creative point. I like the use of music. I think it's fun to do. I just think it's the least stressful part. So I think if you ask a lot of writers, they probably enjoy that the most. I don't think – it's necessarily for me as creatively stimulating as 
um, you know, the very initial part of figuring out, especially for a pilot, who are my characters? What's my world? What's the story I want right. to tell? And post-production can obviously get incredibly tedious, and you're looking at the same footage over and over and over again for hours, but you're with people, which is always kind of nice. As oh, yeah, to... it's great. You know, it's, you're, you're, you know, drinking coffee and eating junk food, and, right. you know, these people who are incredibly sophisticated at what they do, and you're color correcting, right. and, you know, <laughs> you're, you're doing a music spot, and you're working with other people who are wonderful at what they do and just sort of judging their work right you know look it's it's kind of the reward at the end of a, of a very long process right but you're also uh i don't know it, it seems to be the post-production process is a little bit of an exercise in lowering your expectations because at that point you know what you have you know the ceiling of how good it can be uh when you're in the writing process when you're creating process the sky's the limit this next episode is going to be the greatest episode of tv ever written you know you really can sort of go in <laughs> that's an interesting way to look at it <laughs> right um i mean i i have I have typically found, and this this is you know why casting is so important. I mean, look, you could probably change an you know a, a, an episode of television or a movie as much, if not more so, during you know during editing as you can in the writing of it. Right. I mean, you really can have radical shifts of tone and performance and you know emphasis. Um, and so, editing is a very powerful tool, right? It's it's great. Um, I always hope for a really pleasant surprise of when I go back and I look at the performance and you string together, you know, the scenes that you want, the moments that you want, the performance you want, that whatever you sat in your office writing and thinking, this is pretty good. Ah, this feels good. I'm proud of this. That you have cast people in it who take it to another level, yeah. you know, and who, may, who, who put something into what you wrote that maybe you intended or maybe you didn't, but makes it incredibly special in theirs. I mean, you talked about Adrian before. Mm-hmm. You know, she there there was sort of an inner strength, but also an impishness to her character in the pilot that I did that I thought was it was so winning and so much fun, and you really, you really wanted to see her. You know, there was an intelligence to you know Noah's performance um, in this pilot that I thought these are all things that no one will ever see. I am thinking as I'm saying this, so I could really say anything. Better example, Boston Legal, right? Like, no matter what I wrote as a long closing for James, or no matter what David wrote as a long closing for James, when James Spader gets a hold of that material and absorbs it, and then he's using his body and his face and the modulation of his voice, it's better. If you get a great actor, it's better. And to me, that's, that's the incredibly um, satisfying surprise in post-production. Awesome. Uh, well, listen, I know you're at the office. You've got to get back to work. Um, thank you so much for giving us your time and, and, and sharing all this with us. Ah, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Good luck on the show. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Craig Turk. That was fun. Such a sweet guy. Uh, heard a lot about David E. Kelly didn't ask him enough about working with Shonda Rhimes and Robert and Michelle King and Dick Wolf. Uh, we'll definitely need to have him back. Thanks so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. Uh, if you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. We'll take you 10 seconds. Um, you can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.